listening to CodesCast, a podcast from the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling at Concordia University. Vous écoutez CodesCast, un podcast du Centre d'histoire orale et de récits numérisés à l'Université Concordia. Yeah, so uh, thank you for coming, and I'm wondering if you can introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit. Sure. Um, my name is Leila Nazi. Um, I was trained as an anthropologist, but I call myself uh, more of an oral historian now. And um, I teach at um, a relatively new private university in Istanbul, which is called Sabancı University. And I love oral history. Awesome. Um, and can you tell me a little bit more about your work? Okay, well, um, I was trained as an anthropologist, got my PhD in anthropology. I was at Cornell University. And um, how I got into oral history uh, was through anthropology. Uh, I was doing um, anthropological fieldwork with pastoral nomads um, in the mountains of southern Turkey. And I was trying to figure out um, the life stories and the history of the region that I was working in. And all of a sudden, it turned out that what I was doing was oral history because I felt that, you know, the history of the region hadn't been written very much. So I started to create what turned into um, an oral history archive where I would um, interview um, all of the members of this pastoral nomadic community and have them tell their life stories. And then I was hooked. Uh, that was the beginning <laughs> of my life as an oral historian. And you've been doing a lot of work since. Uh, like, it seems like you have your fingers in so many pots and so many different projects. Yeah, well, it started out um, with uh, this more anthropological project, which was about pastoral nomads um, and how they became settled over time and sort of um, the whole history of nomadism in Turkey and what's remembered about it and how it's changed over time. And then uh, when I started teaching in Istanbul, um, I became really interested in uh, Turkish national identity and its history, its, its construction, going all the way back to late Ottoman times. And I started interviewing uh, first uh, really elderly people um, who remembered um, the time before the modern uh, Turkish Republic was established. So those people who could remember, for example, almost or have accounts of um, the First World War um, or the breakup of the Ottoman Empire and the time when the city of Istanbul, for example, um, was invaded. Um, so these are times that even my grandmother remembered. So it was really exciting. But when I initially started this work, uh, it was really hard to talk to people um, because people were very reluctant to be recorded uh, and reluctant to tell stories um, about their experiences and the experiences of their parents and grandparents. And as we have done more oral history, uh, there has been more discussion in the public sphere and, you know, oral history has become known here. And now I think there is so much going on um, that I feel that there's a real change over the generations uh, in terms of what people are willing to talk about in public. Yeah, two years ago, Alanyalı kız vardı. Yeah, Alanyalıların hepsi için bir şey diyemem ama o iki 
yani Alanya'nın kızı tanıyordum. Ve beni dışarıdan işte arkadaşıma çok beğendiklerini işte gerçekten işte hem tip olarak fiziken işte şöyle böyle falan arkadaşıma anlatmışlardı. Bizle e, tanışalım çok e, tatlı bir kıza benziyor falan filan demişlerdi. Ben de tesadüfen bunlarla otobüs durağında okulun önünde karşılaştım. Most of the people I've interviewed and I think most of the listeners will be sort of Canadian based or Montreal based. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to doing oral history in your context in Turkey and like what that's like and I wonder if there's anything unique about it. Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, I talk to a lot of my um, Canadian or American or European friends and, you know, we talk a lot about the differences uh, in the sense that, you know, there are a lot of rules about oral history that have been established in the West Um, which are great, um, but they take a lot for granted, um, you know, about sort of democracy and and freedom and, you know, ethics and, you know, sort of like best practices, as, as we would put it. And uh, I think many people in many countries, not just in Turkey, but many countries in, you know, what we might call the global south, have very different circumstances. Um, so let, let me give a concrete example. Um, even though the rules say and that when you do oral history, you should ask um, the people you interview to sign a consent form, I never do that. Um, because in Turkey, if people see a sign, of a form that they must sign, um, they think that it's like um, a government form. And This doesn't make them feel secure. It doesn't make them feel protected. Uh, while I think in the Western context, the idea is to actually make them feel like they own their story. Here, it's just opposite. They feel like their story might be stolen from them uh, if there's a signature involved, because like they could get in trouble. So much we prefer to do an oral contract, and it's much more based on trust and on interpersonal relations, and especially on having an intermediary between us who can ensure that trust. That's fascinating, and I think it's really good to have that perspective um, in the oral history community. I'm wondering, how did you come to that? How did you work out those differences? Or is that something you did in community, uh, like an oral history community? Um, not really. Unfortunately, we don't have a very institutionalized oral history community here. I mean, we just kind of um, figured it out as we went along. Um, that's, I think, another major difference, for example, between um, Anglophone countries, where oral history has a very strong tradition. Uh, for us here, it's a very, very new field. And actually, um, you know, oral history in the West came out of history especially out of, of course, feminist history. Uh, you know, women historians played a very important role. Interestingly, in Turkey, um, history, uh, oral history did not come out of history. It actually came out um, of women, mostly women um, who are working in other fields, um, like anthropology, like women's studies, like cultural studies, more interdisciplinary areas, Because in Turkey, history still remains very, I would say, conventional. 
uh, and conservative in terms of its methodology. So it's a very interesting situation where um, we don't really have um, oral history programs or state support for oral history. And actually one of the things I really want to do and have not yet had time for is to write an oral history manual in Turkish because there is you know, so much demand uh, for a, um, an oral history manual that would sort of be fitting to our particular circumstances and needs here. I know that you said you have a background in anthropology, and I'm wondering how that um, informs your work, or if you've left that behind, or what your disciplinary situation is. Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, um, I feel that my anthropological background really informs the way I do oral history. So when I teach oral history, too, I emphasize a lot that I see oral history as an ethnographic practice. And what I mean by that is that... um, I want students to, on the one hand, you know, be rigorous oral historians, but at the same time, I feel that for them to be able to um, theoretically and methodologically analyze that material, that oral history material that they've recorded, um, I feel that they should also do, if possible, ethnographic research. Uh, that's how I work. So I really encourage my students uh, to get to know their interviewees you know, informally as people as well. And the reason that's really important, I mean, it's important in general, but it's especially important in Turkey in the present context, is that over the last couple of years, we find it much more difficult uh, to get permission uh, for video and sound recording, and much more difficult to get permission, for example, um, to use people's names and photographs. So this has become, this is a new phenomenon. There is so much more fear and suspicion within society, unfortunately, um, that in order to convince people, uh, you know, for recording, and also in order to be able to better understand what they don't say in recorded interviews, um, we really have to get to know them and spend time with them. This is why I think um, oral history uh, needs to be more ethnographic. And of course, this also raises uh, issues, serious issues um, about the limits of oral history um, in terms of both technology and ethics. Uh, That is, in what conditions uh, can we really uh, not record at all? And also, um, what kind of responsibility do we have uh, when... um, our records, our archives themselves, uh, can be vulnerable. I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit on what you find to be the most important that's going on with your work, with oral history in Turkey in general, or your students' work. Um, Well, I think the most important thing for us to do here uh, is to create uh, oral history archives. Um, Because this work here is so new, and there is really so little material. Um, so that even though it's very important for students um, to you know, be interested in theoretical issues and to read very widely, at the same time, um, every interview is such a revelation, in a sense, and is so valuable. That's why um, you know, each course that I do every year, um, we choose a theme 
and the whole court, the, all of the students, you know, um, do uh, a project on that particular theme. And we add the whole course uh, research um, to our oral history archive. And then part of it goes online. So I'm hoping that, you know, um, as time goes on, uh, more and more oral history work coming out of Turkey, you know, is going to be published. And we teach in, Tur we teach in English. Um, so even though the interviews are done in Turkish, and uh, we can communicate um, this material um, in English. But of course, there's the problem of translation, uh, which I always face when I write. As academics, uh, we're expected to write, publish in English and in Turkish. So I have to do both. Sometimes I will write an article in English and sometimes it will be translated. Um, and sometimes I actually write uh, in Turkish. So some of my books have been in, are in Turkish. Uh, because there is a real demand. Uh, there are un public universities here uh, where the uh, language of instruction is Turkish. And those students don't have access um, to English books. Something I'm wondering is, what do you think that either your work or your students or oral history in Turkey, what can um, other oral historians learn from it? Or how can you, um, what do you think that you have that's super important that um, the oral history community can take up? Well, when I look at, uh, you know, oral history journals or books, you know, that are out there um, in the English language, of course, it does tend to be more focused on Anglophone societies. Um, you know, I really think, and I talk about this a lot with my oral historian friends um, abroad, you know, that we really need a lot more comparative work. Um, we learn a lot uh, by reading about, you know, oral history conducted in the UK or, or the US or Canada or Australia, for example. But there's not a lot of comparison. It seems like, you know, People are a bit afraid um, of comparative work. Uh, I, I'm now th um, writing about um, uh, the, the experience of uh, Kurdish children in um, uh, boarding schools. And while I was thinking about and reading about, I mean, reading my transcripts and so on, you know, I learned about the, the residential school system in Canada. You know, and I was so surprised because you know, some of the stories uh, and some of the experiences seem so similar, um, even though, of course, you know, there are, you know, major distinctions. Nevertheless, uh, for me, uh, it like to compare notes with an oral historian in Canada who has, let's say, interviewed uh, people who were children in uh, residential schools uh, could really illuminate the way, you know, I'm trying to work with my material here. So I think, you know, this is the kind of work uh, that would be so much fun for us to do. Really, it sounds like you're like a main part in fostering an amazing oral history community in Turkey. Well, I'm not alone, luckily. Um, there are other uh, women, especially um, academics, and also many, many uh, people working in civil society, and many amateurs, especially who are creating projects and trying to learn on their own. So as I say, um, in the last 10 years, there's been a real boom uh, in oral history and memory studies and interest in history from a different angle. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think, you know, this is just sort of the beginning. Yeah, I really have to say thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sure you're so busy and it was a great conversation. I'm very glad to meet you, Sadie. I'm so happy that, you know, uh, you thought of me and um, I will share also uh, with my students uh, great. about this conversation. Yes, thank you very much. Awesome. Codescast was produced by me, Sadie Couture, and Mava Thibault. Original idea by Marie-Anne Gagnon, supervised by Stéphane Martelli. Original music for Codescast was composed by Jacob Lassard.